Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today we have a very, very special episode. I am joined by some of your favorite uh, Ajam stars. Please just say hello, everybody. We're here with Amy Malik. Hello. We're here with Neda Magboulet. What's up? And we're here with Nargis Bagjoli. Hi. And I'm so happy that we're all in this room, by the way. This is amazing. This is like all I've ever wanted. <laughs> <laughs> we're all happy to be here. <laughs> Great. Okay, so for our listeners, if you don't know all of these wonderful voices, let me just introduce you. So first of all, today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Amy Malik, who is an assistant professor of international studies at the College of Charleston. And this year, she's also an associate research scholar at the Iran and Persian Gulf Studies Center at Princeton University. And today we're going to talk about her project, The Paradoxes of Dual Citizenship in the Iranian Diaspora. And of course, Dr. Magoulet and Dr. Bajogli. Oh, guys, can we be on first name basis? Yes, yes. <laughs> we're all going to be uh, co-hosting with me and we're going to be talking to Amy about her, her work. So um, are we all dual citizens? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So, like, I think this is very pertinent, not just for us, but for many of our listeners. So, before we get started, can you talk a little bit about the concept of dual citizenship? Like, is this? I assume this hasn't been always the case where you could just have two mm-hmm. two citizenships. Not always been the case. Yes. No. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the things as I started working on this project that. Um, I had to do was read up on the citizenship literature because that's not my original field of study, right? And so I came across several studies that kind of talk about this shift that we've experienced around the world, particularly since the 1990s, in accepting multiple citizenships. So less than a third of countries in Europe and the Americas had, quote, tolerated dual nationality or dual citizenship. I use them interchangeably here. Um, in 1990, but by 2010, it was actually accepted by almost four-fifths of those same countries. So that's a really rapid shift. That meant that there were a lot more people in the world who have dual or multiple citizenships. And so that comes with um, certain other kinds of trends. So, for example, if in, in 1970 you had dual citizenship, you might have been um, under suspicion or people might have been thinking you had divided loyalties or kind of not sure where your true allegiances lie. Today, we don't really you know, necessarily think of that. When someone has dual citizenship, we kind of think of like, oh, so you have more rights, you have more mobilities, you're able to kind of move around the world in a way that maybe other people can't. That's a big shift in kind of how we think about it. But that shift has not come without its detractors. So there are also people who maintain that loyalty question or increasingly with the war on terror and other kinds of geopolitical trends, use it as a way to kind of throw people under suspicion for other reasons. I think one of the largest things that looms over this debate of dual citizenship, especially with Iranian Americans, is that you know we have a history of immobility when it comes to going to and from Iran and dual citizenship has allowed us mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so you you basically say that for the most part people see getting dual citizenship because it's advantageous right. because it allows people to move in ways that they couldn't before. But you're also arguing that there's downsides to this. Yeah, so recently in the Journal of Immigration Studies, there was a whole special issue on this concept of compensatory citizenship, and this is from Harpaz and Mateos. And so they argue that, and they have data to show that there's been this increasing trend of multiple citizenships 
and that oftentimes it's a, a strategic or instrumentalist kind of reasoning for why they get it. And they call it compensatory citizenship because it's compensating for what they say that their citizenships lack. I don't have mobility, I don't have rights, I don't have access to education, I don't have social status even. And by getting this second citizenship or even third citizenship, I will gain rights, I will gain mobility, I will gain security, access to education, etc. That compensation kind of argument works for a lot of people in the world. That does seem to explain a lot of people's motivations for getting another citizenship. However, in thinking about Iranian dual citizens, I think we found a, a case here that shows the limits of that concept, where having dual citizenship does allow us to go to Iran, does allow for access to the rights that the U.S. affords us. However, in this kind of geopolitical context, especially in the U.S., but we can also talk about Canada, which I do in the paper, or other parts of the world, it can also prevent us from mobility. It can also increase our scrutiny and our surveillance. It can prevent us from certain forms of employment. And so that's what I wanted to kind of look into in this paper. I want to like take a quick uh, pause to note that I'm not suggesting dual citizens are like the most targeted or somehow have it worse off than those who don't have a second citizenship or who don't have status at all. Of course, I'm not saying that. However, in the context of thinking about dual citizenship, I do think the Iranian case offers us a kind of a limit case to think about how this theory has ignored the costs of dual citizenship as it accrues to individuals. We usually think about the benefits of dual citizenship accruing to individuals and the costs accruing to states in terms of their security or their sense of who's really allied with us. Um, but in the literature, we don't often see where the costs of dual citizenship accrue to individuals. And so that's where I think the Iranian case can offer us something to think about. Can you give us maybe like a couple examples that you came across when you were doing your research for this article about some of these costs and how that actually plays out in the lives of any Iranians that you know? Yeah, absolutely. So methodologically, this study was like looking at legal studies, looking at uh, media cases, but also I did semi-structured interviews uh, with particularly Iranian Americans or Iranian Europeans who were trying to work in the United States specifically for government or government contractors. So here's an example where having this dual citizenship actually is going to possibly hurt you in terms of seeking employment in that in like defense or other security sectors or at least limit how much that job can actually turn into a career. I had several um, interlocutors express that when it comes to security clearance, for example, they feel like there is an unofficial limit on the security clearance they're going to be given so that that means they can never rise above a certain uh, level in their job. They, so one of my interlocutors said, this means the job that I love, the job I'm really good at can only be a job. It'll never be a career unless I can figure out how to renounce. And so in the paper, I talk about what I call the renunciation paradox, right? So we've got a situation where we have a Yusenginus law in Iran that says that if you're born to an Iranian father, you are then a citizen of Iran. It is not illegal in the Islamic Republic to have second citizenship, but they don't like it, right? They tolerate it, but it's not a criminal offense, right? But they're not going to recognize that other citizenship. You, you are Iranian. You are not Iranian-American, Iranian-Canadian, whatever. That means they can't intervene if you are on Iranian soil. If you're Iranian-Canadian and you get arrested in Iran, the Canadian government can't do much for you, right? We have several examples of that having happened. And so you have a, a situation where you're born into a citizenship that's automatic, 
And if you are then scrutinized or, or somehow penalized for having had that, having that citizenship, say in the case of someone trying to work for the U.S. government, there's nothing you can really do but try to renounce. The problem is in the Iranian civil code, there is a, a pathway to renounce. But among the things you have to do, you have to be 25 years old, you have to serve in the military or otherwise have that exempted, but you also have to get permission from the cabinet of the prime minister. And that's an extremely high threshold that effectively makes it understood in both the state level uh, in other countries and personally that renunciation is effectively impossible for Iranians to officially achieve. You can demonstrate you've tried, and for some governments that's enough, but in the case of the U.S. government, in certain jobs that apparently hasn't been enough. There's a really famous case actually in Australia. There was a big dual citizenship scandal. We have a lot of evidence of dual citizenship scandals in the last five, 10 years around the world that lets us know that this is still an issue that can be mobilized for political gain, even in liberal democracies, right? We saw this big shift towards multiple citizenship, but it's not without its controversy. In Australia, there was a huge, what the papers call citizenship fiasco, and I put air quotes for those of you listening. For senators in uh, Australian parliament, they were not supposed to be dual citizens. They weren't even supposed to be like eligible for dual citizenship. But as we know, in Australia, a lot of them are descendants of immigrants that had these Eusinginous laws. And so they were eligible for British citizenship, Italian citizenship, usually some form of European citizenship, and had not tried to renounce. And so this became a big scandal where basically 12, 13 different senators had to resign Um because they had not tried to renounce or had not effectively renounced or had not convinced people that they had renounced. So there was an Iranian-Australian senator, uh, Sam Dastyari, and he had tried to renounce. So he was trying to provide evidence of this because they essentially did citizenship role. They said, everyone has to submit your, your citizenships. You have to submit your evidence you've tried to renounce or have renounced, and you have to show that it's official. And so he tried to do that. He went through all these um, legal channels. He hired people in Iran to make sure to like hand deliver his application of renunciation. He was fully on board with renouncing um, at great personal cost to himself. And he was on Twitter talking about this, right? So you can see he's being very public about it, particularly in the context of this scandal, because immigrants were the ones who were kind of being targeted with this dual citizenship question, right? And so he gave as much evidence as he could, but even years afterwards has no official like document saying you have renounced your Iranian citizenship. So what he ended up submitting to the Australian government was that I successfully re- applied for and received a travel visa to visit Iran as an Australian. So that was his like evidence that he had renounced, but it, again, it's not that official paper. So uh, in, in Sam Destiari's case, he had gone through all the steps that he could to you know, approach and apply for a renunciation and provided enough documentation of that that the Australian government was kind of fine with his, you know, his efforts to do that. But in the case of other governments and in other situations, that's not enough, right? So it puts Iranian dual citizens in kind of a paradox situation where didn't apply for this citizenship may not have ever been to Iran or seek to go to Iran, may not have ties to Iran, may not confess any allegiance to Iran, and yet can't um, renounce the citizenship that just kind of automatically came to them. And so that's the paradox that I get into in the paper. I mean, it seems like one of the things that you keep, you're pointing to and you keep talking about is the Iranianness is the issue, right? Because there are dual citizens of other countries or that their dual citizenship is from somewhere else and it doesn't necessarily matter as much. I mean, it's interesting to have both of you in the room, Amy and Neda, because 
your your research both sort of points to the limits of Iranianness in whether it's on race or citizenship. And the way I'm actually sort of hearing this from not being in the fields of work that you guys do, but thinking about it as like you guys are pointing to whether through citizenship or race the the limits of liberal democracies and the ways in which you know who are they actually accepting within positions of privilege and power in their societies either through citizenship or or racial markers and it seems to be an issue of as long as Iran maintains the position that it does vis-a-vis the United States or as long as the US framework on Iran post 1979 and the Islamic Republic as this you know quote unquote biggest sponsor of terror and its position in contradistinction with US national security that Iranians will always be at the limits of these questions because they sort of encompass this enemy marker that also is racialized and has been racialized in a very particular way. And so I wonder if you guys think that this is a problem that Western liberal democracies, even if we tomorrow have a different form of government in Iran and a different form of relationship between Iran and the U.S., do you think these issues will continue for Iranians in these countries or that it'll somehow be resolved and yet the marker will move potentially to the next country that's having a really big issue with the U.S. and then that the way that that's defined and framed sort of for Western uh, liberal countries more broadly. Yeah, no, I think you're pointing to a really important point, at least in this study, is that I'm looking specifically at Iranian Americans, Iranian Canadians. There hasn't been diplomatic relations you know, between Iran and the U.S. for decades with Canada and and Iran since 2012. So we're we're talking about a geopolitically motivated limitation, at least in the context of this study. I think you're right that that is a potential problem for any number of other dual citizens. And it currently is a problem for other dual citizens. I'm looking at Iranians, but anyone who's under that Muslim ban kind of title is also facing the situation, some of the situations we're talking about now, right? The renunciation paradox is where it becomes especially bad for Iranians, right? And for those in countries that have this renunciation problem, which I should say, Tunisia, Morocco, Syria, other countries have these kinds of limitations and difficulties renouncing too. But in the Canadian example, we've got a situation where um, there was a, a bill that went into effect in 2015, Bill C-24, that Essentially, it said, okay, we can denaturalize you if you're charged with crimes of things like um, terrorism, treason, having provided false information to gain naturalization, et cetera. And at the time, the way it was written was that it was just the immigration minister who could make the call. They took it out of the courts altogether, and they took away due process. And so at the time, that meant for a lot of dual Iranian Canadians a real sense of vulnerability. They expressed to me a, a fear of being abandoned by Canada. Not because they were going to go out and commit treason or terrorism, but that all that had to happen was that they went to a country where there might not be due process and there might not be rule of law in the way that uh, they felt there should be. And they were accused of it there and maybe even prosecuted for it there. And then that would mean they could be abandoned by Canada and have their citizenship stripped. And so that was the kind of fears that they were expressing to me. In 2017, liberal government comes back and removes that due process problem, puts it back in the courts, and also removes the terrorism charge from that list of possible revocation causes. But nevertheless, the core of the matter is still there, that this is creating a second-class citizenship for dual nationals all across the board. Because the same 
principles don't apply if you don't have a second citizenship. If you only have one citizenship, you won't be stripped of it because that would create a stateless person. And there's a UN convention against that, right? But if you have a second citizenship, this could happen to you. We could strip it from you. So it was like particularly targeting dual nationals in a way that wasn't targeting other citizens. And so that was the kind of across the board second class citizenship. Add the renunciation problem, and then you've got even below that within the second class citizenship, a second tier where the only remediation for getting yourself out of that second class citizenship status would be to renounce, to to only have Canadian citizenship be your only citizenship, right? But if you can't renounce, then you don't have that recourse and you're at even more of a precarious position than every other dual national candidate. Amy, I'm so fascinated by this, both the kind of regulatory aspect where effectively like Iranians and other people whom this policy affects, like they have to opt out of something that they have already they never already, opted in yeah, for. They never yeah. opted in for. It's like downloading an app and you have to accept the like weird privacy settings. It's getting the YouTube the YouTube album without ever, <laughs> ever having asked. Um, and you I'm can't also, delete it. <laughs> I'm also curious beyond the sort of regulatory aspect, like kind of the affective component yeah, of yeah. this. Um, can you speak to that at all? Absolutely. So in some of the um, people I interviewed, it was especially the 1.5 and second generation um, who were expressing a very strong connection to this problem of not being able to renounce, but also not wanting to renounce, but being asked to do so by potential or current employer. So those who had been in um, federal employment, but not really to do with foreign policy, not really to do with Iran, just working for the federal government at some level, they have to go through these security clearance interviews, right? They reported that their interviews were twice as long as everyone else's, even other dual nationals, but because they were Iranian in particular. And in the interview being asked, would you renounce if you were asked to? Not actually asking them to renounce, but would you renounce if you were asked to? One of my interlocutors said, well, but I actually can't renounce. Like it's a moot, moot question. Like I'm Iranian, they, they really won't really let me renounce. The government official interviewer responded and said, well, then will you not renew your passport? And for my interlocutor, she was really taken aback by that. For her, that was evidence that the U.S. government still questioned her loyalty, even as a federal employee already, that there was still this kind of connection to Iran that they questioned, any connection to Iran, right? Whether she had family there or not, they wanted to know whether they had any connection to the government, whether she traveled back and forth, all of that. But the other thing it made her doubt was, what does it mean to be American? She said, I never really thought of myself as only American. So to have to, to be asked to do that now, when it had nothing to do with my job, just seemed over the top. Like, why? So my, my interlocutor responded and said, but then how would I ever go back? Because if I don't renew my passport and I can't renounce, then I can't get a visa to go to to visit Iran. And her interviewer paused and said, but wait, you told me you don't have any family there anymore. Why would you even want to go there? Which really revealed for her this idea that for her interviewer, any connection to Iran, not okay, A, but it revealed for herself that it wasn't just about being able to come and go. It was a piece of her identity that this passport didn't really mean that she was going to go tomorrow to Iran. She didn't really actually have a plan to go to Iran again. But something about who she was was tied into this place. It's a space. It's a place. It's a memory. It's a connection to her grandparents who had been from there, right? And the fact that she would basically be saying, in exchange for this job, I give up my identity. 
I give up my memory to this place, even if it's my parents' memories to this place. And so she was really offended by this. And it kind of got at an identity and my belonging question for her, where the kind of symbolic aspect of citizenship tends to get divorced from these strategic or instrumentalist explanations. And that we have to remember that these are totally integrated, right? And and so she saw this as something like un-American, actually. Like she had always thought that it, as an American, I'm not supposed to have to choose. As an American, I get to be both, right? Which is very similar to what a Canadian interlocutor said. Like this goes against this bill at the time, this is in 2015, this bill goes against everything I thought Canada was. Canada is supposed to be multicultural and modern and democratic and that I was able to be running in Canadian at the same time and not fear being abandoned, you know, by Canada. And so it comes through in this kind of identity question, exactly what you're you're getting at, that like, it's not just a piece of paper. It's not just access to mobility necessarily, or even access to rights. There's also this belonging aspect and this identity aspect of I am American and I'm Iranian, and it's okay for me to be both until I sit in the security clearance interview and my interviewer says, you need to pick, you need to choose in exchange for a job. And that really hurt her sense of self there. Well, we just saw the case um, that uh, Sahar Noruzadeh, who was the, you know, she had very, very like highest security clearance Mm -hmm. in the U.S. government, and still it didn't matter during the Obama administration. We should say she was working at the White House, right? Yeah, she was at the White House in the National Security Council, and uh, and then later in the State Department, and under the Trump administration, gets pushed out, and the general inspectors. Investigations show that it was due specifically to her Iranian heritage. So even even when security clearance is granted in that way, even at that point, it's still precarious. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the, in those emails that they you know revealed, um, it was that they suspected she was born in Iran and therefore can't be trusted. Okay, first of all, she wasn't born in Iran, but even if she had been, why would that mean she couldn't be trusted? Right. And to be so blunt about it. For me, it felt like maybe something we'd all suspected a little bit under the surface was like so many things with the Trump administration being brought right out into the daylight. Like we all kind of had ideas about the ways that we're discriminated against or our parents are discriminated against for this kind of like heritage or place of birth or something like that. But here was a government official saying to another government official, you can't trust that person. She was born in Iran. It's really hard to reckon with. I consider myself Iranian American, like full, fully. My mother was American, <laughs> my father Iranian. Like, there's, I am Iranian American. To hear that this this fact of my being alone means I am untrustworthy, that I should be discriminated against, that I should be pushed out, is something that I think is really hard to swallow for a lot of people. And again, of course, it's harder for people who don't have status. Of course, it's more, you know. More difficult if you can't even get a foot in the door, right? I don't want to like over overstate the claim, but I also think we do have to pay attention to the fact that just because you have the citizenship doesn't mean that now you're just, oh, full belonging, congratulations, <laughs> off we go. Well, what's interesting with that case too is that then Brian Hook, who was the one who sort of pushed her out, uh, hired another Iranian-American but politically, her views mm-hmm. aligned. And so now when people are making the claim, you push Sahar out for being Iranian-American, they're saying, well, no, actually, look, we, we did hire, you know. Mm-hmm. Plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Exactly, plausible yeah. deniability. So it's all about what kind of Iranian-American are you? 
what discursive path are you walking down and what does that mean? And if you fall in the wrong one, then you can be pushed out. Mm-hmm. But if not, you'll, yeah. So it, it's, yeah, no, I mean, it's this. similarly like every, we all, we're hearing so much more about dual nationals getting arrested and being targeted for being dual nationals, but it's probably not just that, right? There's other things they're being targeted for. Similarly, like with Saha, yes, it was an easy way to kind of point to mistrust for her. When in fact it had to do more with her political allegiances or maybe her kind of discursive path she had chosen, let's say. I mean, I think I started out by saying like this is a time where we have a lot more dual citizens in the world, but that doesn't mean that the mistrust of dual citizenship has necessarily been removed as a potential political tool when it is expedient. And we see that over and over again in these dual citizenship scandals. In Australia, the, the case I was mentioning, it was mostly just political rivals pointing to, oh, 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 your grandpa was from Britain. You could definitely be a dual citizen. Like, were they really a threat to national security in Australia? Probably not. But they were using it as a, like a political tool, right, to be able to cast doubt when useful. One of the questions that I got during uh, the panel today here at Mesa was to do with the fact that, okay, yes, all the things that I've just laid out, fair enough, like there's a limit to the compensatory value of, of dual citizenship for Iranians. And nevertheless, there are Iranians who are currently students, let's say, or otherwise seeking green cards, seeking that citizenship, like it really still has a lot of value. So I, I also want to like absolutely point to the fact that there's still a lot of value in having a U.S. passport in the world today. And it's not the case that I'm, I'm sitting here trying to say that that's not true but that simply this is one way the Iranian case can be seen as a limit on the concept. And it, like I said, true for others who have this renunciation paradox. Amy, thanks so much for coming and speaking with us today. And I also want to thank our co-host for really, I'm, I'm so happy y'all took over because I've been doing podcasts all day and like my brain is fried. <laughs> but um, also just having, you know, you all who are very familiar with each other's work come in and you know have this discussion. I think is really important, especially as Iranian Americans who um, have this this dual citizenship affect our daily lives. So um, I just want to thank you, thank you, and thank all of you. Yeah. Thanks, Rustin. Thanks for having us. Thanks to my dear friends and colleagues, Neda and Agus, <laughs> for joining us as well. It's wonderful to have these conferences to reunite us all in the same space. And thank you, Rustin, for wrangling us together to have this chat. <laughs> Pleasure's all mine. So for our listeners, once again, that was Dr. Amy Malik. She is Assistant Professor of International Studies at the College of Charleston. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please contact us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we can carry on the discussion there. Until next time. <laughs>